Welcome to episode one of our COVID-19 Inquiry Spotlight Sessions. What is a public inquiry? I'm Alex Friston, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues Hannah Frost and Hannah Howard from the Business Crime and Compliance team at Shoesmiths. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what a public inquiry is, how they're established, and the various stages of an inquiry. So, let's start by explaining what actually is a public inquiry, and most importantly, what's the purpose of them? Hannah? Well, public inquiries are major investigations which deal with matters of great public concern. According to the Ministry of Justice, the government considers preventing recurrence to be the primary purpose of public inquiries, and it seeks to achieve this by addressing three key questions. Firstly, what happened? Secondly, why did it happen and who is to blame? And thirdly, what can be done to prevent this happening again? There have been a number of high-profile inquiries, which I'm sure everyone will have heard of. Um, Alex, perhaps you could talk us through some of those. Absolutely, Hannah. There is a you know, wide range of public inquiries, such as the Manchester Arena bombings, Hillsborough, uh, the 7-7 bombings, and most recently, and notably, which I know all three of us have done quite a lot of work on, is the Grenfell Tower Inquiry. But our focus, uh, especially in this series uh, on the podcast, will be on the upcoming COVID-19 inquiry, which is due to commence in the spring. The difference with the COVID-19 inquiry, it won't really be looking to prevent sort of a recurrence of the pandemic, but rather it'll be looking to prevent recurrence of sort of adverse personal, adverse economic, and, you know, unfortunately, the public health consequences of the virus itself. So Hannah, do you want to chat through sort of how inquiries work then? Yeah, sure. Um, so all inquiries start by looking at what happened. And they do this by collecting evidence, analysing documents and examining witness testimonies. Then, based on what the evidence that they've heard, they go on to form recommendations. And to form those recommendations, they often draw on experts and policy professionals, which are intended to guide government and others to help make the changes um, that they implement through by way of recommendations meaningful and ensure positive change in the future. As an example, the types of experts that we've seen on the Grenfell Tower inquiry has included a wide range of sector professionals on areas from cladding to fire safety, um, smoke control and building control. And if you think that sounds broad, if we think about how wide ranging the COVID inquiry might be, we could see an even broader range of um, sector professionals providing their expert opinions on the COVID-19 inquiry. So taking the upcoming COVID-19 inquiry as an example, Hannah, do you want to talk us through how inquiries are usually structured? Yeah, of course. At the time of recording, the inquiry's terms of reference have not yet been published. So the exact scope of the investigation that the inquiry will undertake remains to be seen. I mean, the COVID-19 inquiry is such a multifaceted inquiry that at the moment there isn't too much structure, but everything should hopefully become clearer once the terms of reference are set out. The Scottish terms have already been set out and they're encapsulated under one overarching strategic goal, which is to investigate the strategic elements of the handling of the pandemic. That's obviously quite a broad overarching principle and there'll be numerous specific terms of references within that. And the terms of reference are specific instructions outlining the questions that the inquiry should address, the types of information and feedback that the government wants, and often a sense of when the inquiry should issue its report. Now, the terms of reference, as I mentioned, are yet to be decided for the English COVID-19 inquiry. And that may well involve a period of consultation, which Alex, perhaps you could set out a bit more information about. Increasingly, what we're seeing happening at the moment, sort of trends are that inquiry chairs 
are sort of consulting on these terms of reference in draft form with you know large amounts of individuals, groups affected by the particular issue at hand. For something like the COVID inquiry, you know, it's affected all areas of society. So it's going to be a massive sample size. And you know, partly because of this, you know, terms of reference have definitely been growing longer, becoming more detailed. And then as such, you know, as a result of that, inquiries have been broadening in scope and then you know they've been becoming more lengthy and costly too. Just to sort of bit of context then in terms of what a terms of reference might look like, going back to the Grenfell Tower terms of reference, these looked at the cause and spread of the fire, the construction, the refurbishment of the tower itself, the adequacy of the regulations, and also you know the actions that local authority took or didn't take and other bodies before the tragedy actually occurred. We'll be talking more about the terms of reference and how important a chair is in public inquiries in the next episode. Anna, do you want to let us know sort of how, how does a business or how does an individual get involved in an inquiry? Tends to be known as a core participant and, and most of the information required by the inquiry to fulfil its purpose will come from these non-expert witnesses that are otherwise known as core participants. Um, the chair has the ability to designate a person, organisation or entity who will play a key role in the inquiry process as a core participant. Um, organisations also have the opportunity to apply to be a core participant as well. And this can be done at any time during the course of the inquiry and um, provided that the personal organisation consents. So there are a number of factors um, that are considered by the chair when deciding if a person can be designated as a core participant. Um, Hannah, could you chat us through some of those? Yeah, there are three primary um, considerations. The first of which being whether the person or company played or may have played a direct and significant role in relation to the matters to which the inquiry relates. The second is whether they have a significant interest in an important aspect of the matters to which the inquiry relates. Or thirdly, whether they may be subject to explicit or significant criticism during the inquiry proceedings or in the report or in any interim report that is issued throughout the inquiry. I think perhaps what might be of more interest than how core participants are designated is having a look at how they're then permitted to participate in the inquiry. Um, Alex, could you take us through that? Whilst we're going to be covering core participants in a bit more detail in a later episode, examples of which might include bereaved families, frontline workers, businesses, educational establishments, you know, government departments, and I think very interestingly, people that might likely be sort of facing a bit of criticism, um, where such people you know, are identified and designated as sort of core participants, they're then permitted to participate in a number of ways. This might be asking questions of witnesses, um, receiving relevant disclosure in advance of hearings, making opening and closing statements, you know, suggesting lines of inquiry and questioning to be pursued you know, by the inquiry themselves. I think the issue with the COVID inquiry is that due to the size and scope of it or the likely scope of it, it's likely to have, you know, quite an extensive number of core participants. Um, but as I said, we'll be discussing this in a late, later episode. Um, Hannah, who else is who else is involved in an in inquiry besides core participants? So besides core participants, and I know we've touched on experts um, earlier in the episode, but witnesses are really key to consider and they play a huge part in any inquiry. They're required to provide evidence to the inquiry, but they're not permitted to ask questions or play an active part. So they don't have as much of an involved role as a core participant. 
The Inquiries Act 2005, which provides a set of powers and rules for how an inquiry should operate, confers powers to an inquiry to compel witnesses to give evidence. So that's something to be aware of if um, you're an organisation or, or business that, that might be compelled to give evidence. And it also contains legal safeguards and procedures, which provide a statutory framework for many of the elements of the witness procedure. Um, so that's witnesses. Hannah, I know we've got some information to run through about the key stages of a public inquiry. Could you talk us through those? There will be differences in every inquiry in terms of the length of some of these phases, but there are five general phases that would be applicable to any public inquiry. The first of these is setting up. This is an administrative phase and includes staffing, finding premises and agreeing inquiry procedures, that sort of thing. Um, this is the stage at which the COVID-19 inquiry is currently in. Then moves on to the active phase, which includes preliminary hearings, obtaining information, analysing and assessing the information obtained and taking statements. And then once all that information has been obtained, oral evidence will then start. As we've discussed, any person or relevant organisation can be called as a witness to give evidence and obviously call participants would be giving evidence at that stage too. And following the conclusion of the evidence, the inquiry team will conduct its analysis and write its report, including the all-important recommendations. The final stage is then another administrative stage, which is winding up, where proceedings are brought to a final conclusion. So in terms of the COVID-19 inquiry specifically, what are our predictions as to what it is going to cover? Hannah? So I think the inquiry is likely to look at the preparedness of the UK for a pandemic at kind of a key level there. And then also the use of non-medical interventions such as border controls and social distancing and lockdowns um, to control the pandemic. Alex, have you got any thoughts? Yeah, completely agree with you, Hannah. You know, it's something that's ultimately it's permeated all areas of society, but we might expect it to look at maybe the use and effectiveness of the test, trace and isolate strategies that the government have used throughout. And also, uh, you know, the impact of the pandemic on its entirety on the NHS um, and waiting lists and what's happened there and what's going to happen in the future with that. Hannah? Yeah, just a couple of, of, well, leading on from that, really, the procurement of medical and other equipment such as PPE, the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. And then also just a, a broader point about the impact and the differing impact of the pandemic on specific communities both social and ethnic groups. So having thought about what we think the COVID-19 inquiry is likely to cover, what is it that we think it needs to achieve by the end of this process? I think it absolutely needs to achieve and provide an answer to the question, were we prepared and prepared enough? And were the measures that were put in place effective, um, taking into account the timings of, of the different measures that were introduced? And with that in mind, what's the right balance struck? Absolutely. And, you know, we need to think about who got left behind as well, you know, marginalised members of society. And I think the most important question of all is what can we learn to be better prepared moving forward? We don't know. It might happen again in a year's time, two years time, a decade's time. We need to know what we can do so we're better prepared next time. So all in all, quite a lot then, both in terms of what it needs to achieve and also what it will need to consider. And I think 
due to that, there have been some indications that it might be separated on a modular basis or into distinct modules um, so that it can break some of that down. And also that hearings will take place across the UK. This pandemic has affected the whole of the UK and therefore there will be interested parties with information that needs to be heard everywhere. So that's it for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us for this spotlight session. In the next episode, we'll be considering some of the difficulties that the inquiry might face by virtue of it being both commissioned by and also an investigation into the state. And we hope you can join us for that one. Thank you for listening.